Tonight then, let us return to that chapter we read from Numbers chapter 23. We're going to continue to look at Balaam, and the title for the meditation is just quite simply marks of a false prophet too, because we looked at him last week. And uh, we have more indications here of what it is like to be a false prophet. Now, as we're here, I don't think there's any of us who'd fall into this category of being a false prophet. But as we look at Balaam, we can also determine what a, a hypocrite is like or a false professing Christian is like. And therefore, we seek to glean lessons from the life of, of Balaam. In chapter 22 that we looked at last week, maybe it could be summed up in a line, Balaam and God's will. Balaam and God's will would sum up basically chapter 22, where Balaam sought to go with these men who wanted him to curse the people of God, and he went despite uh, God's protestations, we might say. So Balaam and God's will would sum up chapter 22. Towards the end of chapter 22, we have Balaam arriving uh, with Balak. They meet together, and Balaam, Balak greets the great prophet and offers a sacrifice, a sacrifice that Balaam took part in. And no doubt that would have been a sacrifice to Baal, to the gods of the, the Moabites. But in here in chapter 23, we have, if you like, we have Balaam beginning to do the work that he was called upon to do and the work that he hoped to benefit from financially, ultimately. And if chapter 22 is summed up by Balaam and God's will, chapter 23 may well be summed up by Balaam and God's message. Balaam and God's message, because Balak wanted Balaam to come and deliver a curse. And Balaam, in some sense, wanted to, but God would not let him. Ultimately, this false prophet was going to deliver God's message, and nothing was going to thwart God in any sense. And Balaam did not have liberty to say what he wanted. God was going to overrule, as we shall see. So chapter 23 is basically summed up Balaam and God's message. In this chapter here, we have Balaam offering sacrifices on three occasions. Seven bullocks and seven rams on each occasion. After the first and the second sacrifice, we have Balaam giving his parable or his oracle or his message. But after the third sacrifice was offered, Balaam delivers his parable in chapter 24 that we shall look at later on. 
So we have three sets of sacrifices being offered here in this chapter. And at each offering, there were seven altars, seven sacrifices, seven bullocks, and seven rams. But only after the first two did Balaam offer any kind of word from the Lord. What are we then to see and notice in these verses? Well, principally, we want to look at the the two oracles, the two, the two burdens or the two messages or the two parables that were delivered uh, by Balaam to Balak, the king of the Moabites. And the first oracle is recorded for us really in verses 1 to 12 of chapter 23. Verses 1 to 12 of chapter 23. And we might look then at verse 8. Here we have the words of Balaam, How shall I curse whom God hath not cursed? Or how shall I defy when the Lord hath not defied? And here what he is basically saying to Balak, to his horror and to his apprehension, he is saying that God has blessed his people. And if God has blessed his people, he cannot do anything else about it. And these people are blessed. They are highly blessed. And there is no way is Balaam able to do or to undo that blessing. It's absolutely impossible. Those whom God has blessed are truly blessed. And as we look at the at this words from this oracle and the first or the second oracle, we are to understand that these things obviously apply to the people of that day, to the people that Moses was leading to the people who were on the plain of Moab at this time. But they themselves knew nothing about this occasion, chapters 22 and 23 and 24. They did not know what was happening in real time concerning these matters. Only afterwards was it revealed to Moses, and we have it here written down in the Word of God for us. But as this was going on, they were ignorant of it. And what the Word is telling us here, these people were truly blessed. And what's appropriate and what's applied to the people of Moses at that time, to the children of Israel, there as they were on the plains of Moab, friends, it has, it has a higher application to God's people today. And we are to meant, meant to realize this, that this word is for God's people today. God's people are blessed. And if God has blessed his people, they truly are blessed it's the highest blessing that any person can receive is to have God's benediction upon their life. And of course we know the greatest blessing that God can give to his people is to have their sins forgiven. It is to be reconciled to God. It is to be justified by faith. It is to be declared righteous in the sight of God. That's your portion. If you truly belong to the Lord Jesus, that is your portion, and it cannot be taken from you. It truly is the blessing that he giveth and addeth no sorrow with it. We read elsewhere in God's word. He goes on, verse 9, 
For from the top of the rocks I see him, and from the hills I behold him. Lo, the people shall dwell alone, and shall not be reckoned among the nations. What is this talking about? Well, he's seen these people, and he recognizes they are a people that the Lord has chosen. This is marvelous. This is a wonder. This, indeed, is the sovereignty of God. This is God choosing a people for himself. There was nothing great in Israel, nothing praiseworthy in the people at all, nothing that God could hang on to, as it were, nothing that would make them shine above any other people. Yet, in his wonderful sovereignty, by his own free sovereign will, he has chosen them in order that he might work a plan of redemption. And that's what he did. And here the prophet Balaam, the false prophet, he sees and he recognizes they are a separate people. They are separate because they have been separated unto God. He has chosen them and they have been set apart. And that is still true, we do believe, of ethnic Israel today. They are, in some sense, the Jews, a separate people, wherever they go. They may well get on in life. They may well integrate in some sense in society, but in another real way they are separate. They are the ancient covenant people of God. But it also has application for ourselves. If you're a Christian, you know, the, the great plan of salvation, the plan of redemption, why some are saved and some are not is a mysterious thing. And it will baffle us, but we always put it down to God's free, sovereign grace. But we have been chosen, chosen before the foundation of the world, before creation, before sin, before anything. This is amazing. The Christian has truly been set apart in that sense. And therefore, because we have been set apart, the Christian should live a life of being set apart. That doesn't mean to say we live in isolation. It doesn't mean to say that we become reclusives or that we hide ourselves in monasteries or whatever. It doesn't mean that at all. But it does mean to say that our lives are to be separated unto God. And we are to be a, a distinct people. And we are to be noticed as different. We are or should be strangers and pilgrims in this world. And you will agree that one of the problems today with the, the professing Christian church is that we don't see that clear distinction be between the people of God and the people of the world. And many within the church today want the church to get more like the world. And they might have good intentions. They might want to become more like the world in order to attract the world. This is clearly contrary to the scriptures. We are to be distinct and separate. Campbell Morgan said, quote, The church did most for the world when the church was the least like the world. 
how true that is. If we want to have any impact, as we should want to have, then we are to have an impact by being separate. Not holier than thou. Not that we don't intermingle with society and have an influence in society, but our tongue, our behavior, our clothes, our manner, our homes, everything is to reflect that we belong unto Jesus Christ. He is our Lord and our King. Here, God's people, even the prophet, could see, Lo, the people shall dwell alone and shall not be reckoned among the nations. What does he go on to say in the first Oracle 10? Who can count the dust of Jacob and the number of the fourth part of Israel? We're not exactly sure what he, he saw here. The, some would suggest that he didn't see all of Israel from his vantage point. Israel had four sections. We noticed that at the beginning of the book of Numbers, how they were set around the tabernacle and they had their certain sections to be in. And there was four sections around the tabernacle. And maybe he saw a fourth part of it, but even that fourth part was a vast amount. But the point that he would have us understand here is that Israel, the people, were innumerable in all senses. There were a vast amount of people. And this would hearken back to the time when they went into Egypt. Was it not around 70 souls that went down from Israel into Canaan and settled there? But when they came out, there was a great vast army of them. God had truly blessed his people. And this would remind us of the promise that God made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 13. And I will make thy seed as the dust of the earth, so that if a man can number the dust of the earth, then shall thy seed also be numbered. Genesis 13 verse 16. Who can count the dust of Jacob? He saw a vast army, a vast amount of people. Whether he saw them all or not, it doesn't matter. But what he saw was a vast amount, and he was amazed. Here we see the faithfulness of God. God was giving or fulfilling the promise that he had given to Abraham. Here is something for us to be encouraged the church, God's people. There are not many professing Christians here tonight. There's not many in the professing Christian church in the UK and indeed through the Western world. We have said it before and we don't want to keep saying it in case we, be, we become very pessimistic, but the numbers are not great. But the numbers will be great. Christ will have an innumerable number. There will be a vast amount of people in heaven. Oh, in comparison with all that have ever lived, well, that's another matter we might want to debate about that. But 
ultimately Christ indeed shall have an innumerable amount of subjects. It will not be a tiny amount. It may well be a remnant, but even that remnant will indeed be a large amount. And therefore, let us be encouraged. There has always been ups and downs in, in the history of redemption. There have always been times when the people of God had been low, and then God has chosen to bless a particular time and season. There's no telling what God can do. We must not limit him. Christ will have an innumerable amount of subjects. And regardless of the number, he shall see of the travail of his soul. And his work that he undertook on Calvary's tree, which we hope to remember in the not too distant future, he will see of that work, and he shall be glorious. But notice also what he says in verse 10, Let me die the death of the righteous, and let my last end be like him, or be like his. How many people say exactly the same as Balaam? They don't use the same words. These are biblical words. These are the words of a prophet, and many people cannot speak like that. But what they do not articulate accurately is what they think and is what they would like. In other words, what he's saying is, I want to be in glory with God's people. He recognizes that these people that the Moabites want to destroy will have a glorious end. An absolutely glorious end. And he wants to share in that glory. As many people want to share in the glory that belongs to the Christian. Many people might be looking at your life. And at the great hope that you have. And they would wish to have that hope. Oh, they would also wish to hold on to their life and to indulge in all kinds of sin, that's not up for debate. They would like that. They would like to have their life in this world, but when it's all over, they would like to go to glory. That's exactly what Balaam is saying. But what he is saying is, let me carry on with my life. Let me live my life the way I want. And then when the time comes to be gathered to my fathers, I want to die the death of the righteous. I want to be like those people. Well, it doesn't work like that. It doesn't work. If you're going to die the death of the righteous, you must live the right life of the righteous. And what is it to live the, the life of the righteous? Well, to live the life of the righteous is to be righteous. And the only way to be righteous is to have the righteousness of another, even Jesus Christ. It's not enough to have good intentions. Many people have good intentions. Many people hear the gospel. Many people nod in approval of the gospel. Many people see themselves as sinners. 
that they want to live their life. And then, when it's time, they think, then maybe they'll embrace Christ and the gospel. Let me die the death of the righteous, and let my last end be like his. Well, the first oracle then pictures Israel as a chosen people. Why were they chosen? They were chosen because God loved them. And that is mysterious. But that is it. Well, if the first oracle tells us that Israel as a chosen, we're pictured as a chosen people, what does the second oracle tell us? Well, it tells us that they are a conquering people. Why? Because of the faithfulness of God. A chosen people because of the love of God. A conquering people because of the faithfulness of God. And we find these things in his audit, the second oracle. Look at verse 19, for instance. Here, Balaam said, God is not a man that he should lie. He doesn't lie. He has blessed them. He's going to bless them. He has already blessed them. He's taken them out of Egypt. He's kept them in the desert for some 40 years, and he's about to bring them into the promised land. God has been blessing them all the time, and his word has never failed. God cannot lie. And this surely is encouragement for God's people today. We have in God's word, we have his word. He cannot lie. So all his promises and covenants are sure. And we might also say all his threatenings are sure too. If we don't heed the warnings, they will come to pass. Because God cannot lie. He cannot change his mind. It's impossible for him. Because God is God. And he's not a man that he should lie. He goes on. Neither the Son of Man, that he should repent. This simply means he doesn't change. He doesn't change his mind. So his character remains the same. And the, the Old Testament, in Malachi chapter 3, I think it's verse 6, it almost ends with this statement. I am the Lord. I change not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. And that was said in a day when the people themselves were breaking the covenant. They were breaking the covenant of marriage. They were going through divorces. And God was reminding them that he's not a God who breaks his covenant. I am the Lord. I change not. And because I change not, therefore ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. The sons of Jacob, Israel, are blessed because God is not a one who changes they might change. They might break their part in the covenant. But God will not and cannot. Because he does not change. And is this not a wonderful uh, comfort to God's people? In this world of change and decay all around us. What do we see? We see prime ministers go and come. We see monarchs go and come. 
We see kingdoms come and go. We see wars and rumors of war. We see all kinds of changes and decay all around us. But there's one thing that does not change. It is Almighty God. In verse 21, he goes on, He hath not beheld iniquity in Jacob, neither hath he seen perverseness in Israel. Israel, the people that Moses was the leader of, they were far from perfect. Even in our little study of numbers, we've noticed how sinful they were. But they were different in the sense that their sins were forgiven. They were reconciled to God. And when God looked upon them, he didn't see iniquity. He didn't see these things because their sin had been dealt with. Now we can look upon this in our own time, in our own generation. If we're a Christian, what a glorious blessing it is. Our sins are forgiven. And Christ, when he looks up, when, and God, when he looks upon us, what does he see? He doesn't see us. He sees, he sees the righteousness of Christ that's been imputed unto us. That's what he sees. Israel, in many ways, was no different from the nations round about them. What made them different? They were God's people, and God had dealt with them. It's exactly the same for the Christian. For ye were dead in trespasses and sins. The Christian was a child of wrath, just like others. But because of grace, because of mercy, we have been transformed. And Christ has taken our sins upon himself. And by a wonderful divine act, his righteousness has been imputed unto the Christian. So that God does not see iniquity. He doesn't see perverseness. He sees his Son. Verse 22, God brought them out of Egypt. God has brought them out of Egypt. Here Balaam is, is acknowledging that tremendous act of redemption that was accomplished by God. And what he is saying by uh, um, implication is, if God has taken them out of Egypt... Is he going to take them to the Moabs, uh, to the plain of Moab, for them to be destroyed by the king of Moab? After all that God has done, is he going to take them out into the wilderness to be destroyed? Balaam can see that God is for them, and so should the Christians see this. If God be for us, who can be against us? Well, as we've said in other times, there may be many things and people against us. But what the verse is teaching is, who can possibly stand up against God? If God is for us, no matter who is against us, can they stand? And then by implication, can we fall? Of course not. Now, this is not a license to carelessness. This is a motive for worship and a motive for adoration, and a motive for thankfulness. If God be for us, 
Is God for the Christian? Of course he is. He has demonstrated. He has given his son. He has given the highest gift he could possibly give. Will he not freely give other things if he has given his son? God brought them out of Egypt. God has brought the Christian out of bondage, away from the thraldom of the evil one. Is God going to abandon his work? No. This is what Balaam is seeing here. Even this false prophet could see that God, God's arm, God's mighty arm is working in their favor. They will be brought into the promised land. Nothing can stand against Israel. Verse 24. Behold, the people shall rise up as a great lion and lift up himself as a young lion. He shall not lie down until he eat of the prey and drink the blood of the slain. He's talking about victory. Nothing can stand against Israel. No weapon that's formed, I think it says in Isaiah, no weapon whatsoever can stand against the people of God. By this time, poor Balak was somewhat flabbergasted. And in verse 25, he wants to silence the prophet Balaam. What does he say? Balak said unto Balaam, Neither curse them at all, nor bless them at all. Don't say a word. Because when I ask you to go and curse them, you come and bless them. It will be better you said nothing. Balaam said, uh, Balak said unto Balaam, Come, I pray thee. Oh, sorry, verse 26. But Balaam answered and said unto him, Balak, Told not I thee, saying, All that the Lord speaketh, that I must do. Well, one or two lessons then to conclude about Balaam. Because we're looking for the marks of a false prophet. What are the marks that we can derive thus far from Balaam's life as it is recorded for us in chapter 23. Well, four brief lessons, four brief bullet, bullet points. We have a man here with great gifts, but no grace. Great gifts. This man, and this is mysterious, this man was well known. He had a wonderful rep reputation, a successful reputation. He came from a great country, a great distance away because Balak had heard about him. And he knew that if Balaam cursed the people, the people were cursed. His prophecies, his oracles, his burdens, his word came true. And therefore he had great gifts, but he had no grace, no grace. And gifts is not necessarily a sign of grace. He had great enthusiasm. We said he's come from a long journey, a long distance. 
No planes, no bus, no trains, no cars these days. It would be a long, tiresome journey. Yet he came with great enthusiasm. He went about his work, erecting altars, giving orders, and all that was required of him. He went about his duties with great enthusiasm. He was diligent, but no grace. The root of the matter was not in him. And many people can be running about here, there, and doing many things in the church and in the Christian world. They can be great activists, and they can do the things that they do with great enthusiasm. But there's something missing. The root of the matter is not in them. They don't have the grace of God. He was a prophet who had great experiences. Many would love to have the experiences that he had. That time that he met the angel of the Lord, when the donkey spoke to him, and when he replied to the donkey, and when he saw the angel of the Lord with a sword drawn before him. These were only some of his great spiritual experiences that he had. You know, if he was given a testimony night, he would have a wonderful reception. You would listen to every word he said. You would be enthralled. Here was a man who had dwelling, dwellings or dealings with the other world, with the eternal world, something that many of us know nothing about. This man could tell firsthand of tremendous spiritual experiences. But again, he had no grace whatsoever, nothing. He was false. Don't be taken in by people who can tell you of great experiences. When someone gives their testimony, you want to hear, yes, about their, how they began to take up the cross and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. But you want to hear about what's going on in their life today. What's it like today? You don't just want to hear about someone who's conversing. You hear about 10 years ago or 20 years ago or 30 years ago. You want to hear about their walk with God today. And be careful when you hear of all kind of spectacular experiences. If we learn anything from the Apostle Paul as we looked at 2 Corinthians, he was reluctant to give an account of his experience. It was dragged out of him. Why? Because he had to defend himself. Otherwise, he would never have uttered these things about being taken up into paradise. Here was a man who could, in some way, maybe match the experiences of the apostle, yet no grace. He also, finally, he also had great orthodoxy. The Lord his God. I will not say anything but what the Lord will tell me. Verse 19 is a good one. Here he's talking about God. God is not a man that he should lie, neither the Son of Man that he should repent. This man knows his theology of God. He's orthodox. 
God is not something that he has made up. Many people today have a God of their own imaginations. This man was able to accurately describe God. He was orthodox. But again, no grace. No grace. It's mysterious, friends, how he could be so intimate with God, how God would speak to him, how God would deliver to him oracles and parables, messages that were true, that were divine, yet he had no grace. The marks of a false prophet. Well, these marks can be found in false Christians. We can have grace, we can have gifts, enthusiasm, experiences, and orthodoxy, but no grace. It's a sobering thought, friends. Amen.